It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today we have a very special guest. His name is Ken Schaphorst. He's a composer, performer, an educator, and chair of the Jazz Studies Department at the New England Conservatory in Boston. Ken, thanks for taking the time to speak with us today on All That's Jazz. Thanks for inviting me, Alan. I'd like to begin today, Ken, in talking a little bit about uh, the New England Conservatory. It's obviously been around for a long time, I believe since 1867. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about the NEC from its original scope and mission uh, to where it's changed and evolved to what it is today. Well, that's a great question. I, I don't know if I can really do justice to the full history of the conservatory. It was initially devised as a school that would teach classical music. Early on, they developed a relationship with the Boston Symphony, which they continue to have till this day. Many of the Boston Symphony musicians were expected to be on the faculty. That was at one time almost a requirement. It was also a school where fairly early on they started teaching jazz. The department that I now teach in, which we now call Jazz Studies, started in 1969 when Gunther Schuller was the president. But even before that, they were teaching what they called popular music. And uh, people like Freddie Cole, who just passed away, was a student there. And Phil Wilson, Cecil Taylor uh, was a student in that department. So that was significant part of the school. We, they didn't call it jazz at that time, but it was, for lack of a better word, it, it, it was something uh, along those lines, certainly. So I, I guess my sense of the history from 1969 to the present is a little bit more clear. So maybe I don't know how much you want me to get into it. But uh, like I said, Gunther Schuler was the one who pushed it. And he hired a fellow named uh, Carl Atkins as the first chair. Carl was very instrumental in developing the program. And uh, they, uh, you know, went through quite quite an effort at recruiting students. You know, at that time, we were one of the few schools, and I think there was some competition with Berkeley that was you know, already going. Uh, that's still sort of a sore point in some of the older <laughs> faculty there that we came along and tried to do the same thing or do our version of that same thing. But the uh, other thing I often mention is, is Gunther and Carl ha- hired some excellent faculty who I think developed the nature of the program that to some degree continues to this day. He hired George Russell, the very famous jazz composer, uh, Jackie Byer, the wonderful pianist. And uh, I think that their vision of jazz, you know, as, as a very creative art form, continued to influence the school, and now it's over 50 years since that happened. But we've had a wonderful run of uh, incredible faculty members to this day. You know, we have uh, Miguel Zenon and Jason Moran. You mentioned mentioned Frank Carlberg, Donnie McCaslin, Billy Hart, Cecil McBee. It's it's really a sort of overwhelmingly rich collection of artists who are also very passionate about teaching. And that, you know, I could give you more names along the history, but um, I, w- I would say one more. When I first came, Bob Brookmeyer was still teaching there. And you mentioned Daniel Herzog, 
who was an excellent young composer. I think Bob really developed a, a way of teaching jazz composers, which has been very important to the school all, th all throughout the history. But I think, uh, among other things, he started something called the Jazz Composers Workshop Orchestra. Uh, that was Bob's idea that the composers needed a group to write for. And uh, Frank Karlberg now directs that uh, since Bob's not there anymore. And, and Daniel was, I know, very involved in that, writing for that group, having that experience of conducting that group and, and hearing his music. So I don't know if that's too much, too little, but <laughs> that's a very quick overview. Not only do you have a, a very solid and wonderful program to offer in the way of uh, jazz and contemporary improvisation, does jazz studies also include composition, arrangement, band leadership? Yes. Yeah, we, ha we have two areas of study within jazz studies. One is jazz performance, and I would say the majority of the jazz studies majors are majoring in that. Currently, we might have eight or nine jazz composition majors, some undergrads. I would say traditionally most tend to be grad students. Uh, Daniel Hersog was one of them, by the way. I, th I don't know how long that's been happening, but I would say almost from the beginning, that was a focus of the department. As you know, Gunther Schuler was a composer, was very interested in writing. Of course, uh, uh, George Schuler, before uh, Bob Brookmeyer, by the way, the other big figure for me was Jimmy Jufri, who taught at the school for many years. Jimmy was very committed to not only uh, obviously composing himself, but teaching composition. So that's been a kind of a steady aspect of the school almost from the beginning, yes. So I know that uh, the New England Conservatory has programs that include preparatory school. Does that extend to the jazz studies department as well? Yeah, there is a jazz division of the preparatory school. And I was involved in getting a youth jazz orchestra started Oh, maybe 10 years ago. I, I don't direct it anymore. Another colleague, Bob Nesky, does that. But that's been a wonderful part of it. But the focus, like I would say the college program, is probably more on the small groups in, in the prep school. But uh, there's an excellent faculty, some overlap between the college and the prep school. But uh, it's, it's uh, maybe even a, a bigger and bigger part of the prep school as, as, as things move on. In keeping with your particular history, career track, and so forth, uh, you spent 10 years, I believe, at uh, Lawrence University mm -hmm. and then uh, moved over to the uh, New England Conservatory. When did you actually start uh, with New England? Well, I started, you know, I have to say, as a student there. Uh, I got my master's in composition in 1984, and then I ended up living there for seven more years, right up to the time that I went to Wisconsin to teach at Lawrence. And that was a very important time for me. Obviously, you know, I, my formal connection to NEC was not continuing, although I did a little teaching, part-time teaching. I started my first big band during that time. And in fact, a lot of the players who played in that band, I continue to have relationships with. Donnie McCaslin was in that band and John Medeski. So it was a, quite a band. And uh, like I said, when I can, I try to get some of those same people together. 
so I, I moved to Wisconsin. I'll give you the very quick version in 1991. And I taught for 10 years, uh, then came back to teach uh, uh, at NEC in a more full-time way in 2001. You know, usually a lot of times uh, as it relates to this podcast, I ask a lot of people, how did you become interested in jazz or what influenced you? But in your case, what influenced you to become an educator? You came huh? from jazz, if you will, if I'm correct on that. I don't, uh, I believe I am. Uh, and yeah. then you've become this supreme educator. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um of course, I've had great teachers, and for me, that goes back to high school. I, I grew up outside Philadelphia, a very small town called Jenkintown, and we had a quite a good jazz band for such a small school. Uh, it was a junior high school and high school combined. So, uh, and he, by the way, he encouraged me to write. His name was Howard Feist, and he played in big bands. He was a jazz player himself, played trumpet. So maybe he knew that I played a little piano and played trumpet. That was my in instrument in the in the big band. But uh, he knew I was interested in writing. So anyway, this is a very long way of answering your question. But uh, he was a, a very inspiring figure, and he played a lot of my music. And by the time I graduated from high school, I think I had a pretty good start as a writer. I had written probably 100 pieces. I mean, I look back on it now, and I think that was a great education without having a formal teacher, just the experience of writing over and over and learning every time I did it. So when I think about my experience, I guess, as a teacher, maybe it started there. I, I really respected him. I, I liked him. I know he changed my life. And every time I teach, I try to think about that. And then I've been lucky throughout my life at NEC. I had some wonderful teachers. When I went to Lawrence University, the person I replaced it was a sort of famous jazz educator named Fred Sturm. And, uh, you know, I sort of had known about Fred, but when I replaced him, we communicated a lot. I, I really came to respect him and I learned a lot from Fred. So I'd, I'd say all, all along the way, there's little, little moments. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll mention one more thing. I never really studied conducting. I have tried over the years, you know, whenever I <clears throat> conduct in front of Gunther Schuller, he would tell me what to do and what not to do, whether I wanted to hear it or not. But um, the uh, part of, I, I guess, writing and then hearing my music played involved compo composing and then conducting. So by the time I got my, my first teaching job at Lawrence, I had done a lot of conducting of my own music and was fairly comfortable with that setting, how to rehearse a band. When I think about that now, uh, you know, that was my introduction in a way to teaching without being conscious of, the, of that at the time. I was learning how to lead a band, which is part of my job and has been a part of my job in, uh, at Lawrence and NEC. So I don't know if that answers your question. It does. You know, and part of the reason why I asked that question is there are so many uh, incredibly talented jazz musicians in our world, but not all of those people could be educators. W what do you think separates that out or what makes a good educator versus being a renowned, incredible jazz musician? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. I've certainly thought about it. I don't know if I have any grand conclusion, but 
I think it's a desire in part, uh, and maybe this is something I've grown into myself. As you know, when I first started, I I think I was sort of going by my instincts a lot of the time, just trying to communicate my ideas as clearly as I can. But the longer I've been doing it, now it's been close to 30 years, the longer I've sort of grown to take it seriously uh, to the point that I do spend a lot of time, maybe more time, <laughs> preparing, thinking about how I'm going to communicate, you know, with the coronavirus situation. You know, now I've had to teach in a very different way, which does take its own sort of unique approach. And I take that seriously. I think not everybody takes that as seriously. I'll just put, put it that way. Mm -hmm. So part of it is just the desire to do it at a high level. Again, maybe that goes back to some experiences that I've had with teachers who were serious as I think I am. I think some musicians, and, and I don't see this as a fault, are, are interested primarily in their own music. You know, one, one funny story, I guess I can say this, is George Russell told me when I first started at NEC, he was still teaching at that time. You know, I was doing a lot of repertoire. I do Ellington's music or just my favorite composers. I do a concert of their music. And George said to me, you know, when I started here, NEC was always trying to get me to do, because he knew Charlie Parker. You know, they wanted to do music by Miles or Charlie Parker. He says, I never did it. <laughs> and he was very proud of that. And he was basically telling me, you know, do your own music which I hadn't really focused on initially. And I, you know, I think about that a lot because that was very sweet of George to say that he, he, think, he thought I should do my music more. But here's the difference. You know, I, George, I think, was interested in his music and his theory. And, and I respect him for that. And that was the supreme focus of his life. Maybe it's, an, again, another angle on this whole educator issue that I I love working on Ellington's music. <laughs> um, I think the students learn something by playing that, that they're not going to learn playing my music. So uh, maybe that's just another way of saying the same thing. I, th sure. I think you have to have a desire to share your own experiences of jazz with the students and, and to hopefully impart some of, of what you've learned from that music. Since you've already mentioned it, uh, let me bring up the elephant in the room here because I know you're about to start a fall semester and doing mm -hmm. live classes. How are you envisioning starting classes in the midst of COVID uh, right now? Uh, it must take some extraordinary measures that you would have in place, I believe. Yes, yes. Much of which, you know, we I haven't seen yet. I've been going into the school occasionally and... Uh, seeing that things have changed. You know, they have signs everywhere, stay six feet apart. They have uh, hand sanitizer, wipes everywhere. I know that, for instance, when the big band starts rehearsing, we won't initially be able to meet with the whole band together. So I'm still trying to figure that out, whether it means sections meeting separately. Uh, hopefully we'll at some point be able to get everyone together in the same room. Uh, everything's going to have to be spread out. You know, singers are a big issue. I guess we're lucky in the sense that in the jazz department, we don't have a lot of choral singing. It tends to be more solo singing. Yeah, a lot of classes will be online, by the way. Uh, my classes at this point are 
scheduled to be taught in person, but I think a lot of the students will not actually be there in person with us. So I'm being asked to teach uh, the students who are there in person, but at the same time, you know, basically stream my class to students who could be in China, they could be in Europe, they could be anywhere, because some students are having trouble coming to the US. So it's going to be a challenge. I'm looking forward to it, partly because it's just been a long time since we've not been making music together. So I, I look forward to any opportunity. And I think the students are looking forward to that too. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's a big question mark. And you know, I guess my fingers are crossed that everything will come together like we're planning for it to, to come together. I think Massachusetts is doing better in a lot of states in terms of keeping the, the numbers down. But as you probably know, parts of our country are not doing that well. And and uh, nervous about what might grow out of that. So sure, you know. and as you said, it's not only going to be challenging, but uh, you need to be courageous as well in order yeah. to commit yourself to this. And mm -hmm. also, uh, to me, I would think it'd be even harder when it comes to music studies as opposed mm -hmm. to literature study or history or something like that, because unless you're actually in the room with somebody performing instrumentally or vocally, you're going to get a different sound uh, or it's just not going to be that same flavor. Yeah. Everyone has to make their own decision, by the way, faculty members, students. And, and, and I'm fortunately in a situation where I'm giving our faculty and our students that opportunity. But I personally uh, look forward to it partly because I think that that's such an essential part of music education. It's hard for me to imagine how we can teach the music without some in-person experience. So much of jazz, as I'm sure you know, involves real-time sort of conversations. You know, the drummer plays this and the soloist responds by playing this. I think in the best situation, if everyone has the best technology, some of that might be possible through cameras and you know very good internet connections mm -hmm. but uh there's nothing that will ever replace being in the same room uh and 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 playing together now i think the way we're going to set up probably is with everyone you know six feet apart so already you know our first rehearsal i can tell you will be in this much more spread out way and i'll be very interested to see how that sounds i've never set up that way but I've seen pictures of it and I'm prepared for that. But even then, I think it, it will be better than, you know, the alternative, which is uh, everything online. By the way, I think there is a way to teach the music to a certain degree by doing things online. And I know so many faculty members are doing that. Um, but I, like I said, personally, I'm looking forward to working with whatever st the students that do choose to come to campus. And, uh, and I think many of them are really looking forward to it, too. Well, Ken, it sounds like not only your department, but the school itself is, is set up for this and uh, ready to take on the, the task. And that's good. And life needs to go on for all of us. So let me ask you about your faculty. Uh, what size uh, is the faculty? And how do you choose or select who's going to be a part of that faculty, mm -hmm. especially since you're the chair of the department? I think it's about 30 faculty members. And I would say maybe 10 are 
full time and we we have our own way of categorizing that. I think it's anyone who teaches consistently 10 hours a week or more is considered uh, full-time or what they call modified full-time. And then the other 20 are part-time. Maybe they do an ensemble. Maybe they have a small studio. Many of them are very important members of the department, by the way, those part-time faculty. So how do we choose them? I mean, many of them were there when I started. Uh, and have continued, uh, Jerry Berganzi. I'm trying to think of some of the ones that you would know who have been there, Cecil McBee. But when someone retires, the, the tendency is to replace them. We just had a retirement of, of the drummer, Bob Moses. So we're actually very soon going to announce a replacement for him. And we do a search. Uh, it's like a lot of colleges where you put together a committee and you get uh, applications, uh, a lot of word of mouth telling your friends, hey, I think you should apply for this. Or in some cases, I reach out to people who I think would be good candidates. And then we make them jump through a lot of hoops. Sure. <laughs> in this case, we had to have them teach virtually over Zoom, which is not ideal, but uh, they all did it. I think we had a pretty good sense of, of what they could do. And then, you know, it's a very difficult decision because I, I have to say, in my experience, there are many, many really qualified jazz musicians who do have experience as educators. I think this is more and more true in our world today. I would say early in the history of jazz, maybe that was less common. But today, uh, it's unusual for a jazz musician not to have some experience. And I'll just say, in our particular case, it was almost uh, overwhelming group of excellent jazz drummers who would have been excellent uh, teachers. Every once in a while, we've added a faculty. You know, I, I can say uh, when I first started, there was only one drum teacher and it was Bob Moses. I felt strongly that we should have a second option. And after talking to the students, uh, some of this came from them. And we hired Billy Hart, who's been on the faculty for maybe 15 years now. So he's going to continue. But that's another wrinkle is, you know, as we were looking at all these other drummers, uh, one of the issues was, well, Billy is teaching what he does. What's a good compliment to that? We, You know, not that anyone's going to do exactly what Billy's doing, but maybe someone who's approaching it in a slightly different way. So that's another thing I think about a lot is not just the individual, but how that in individual fits into the group as a whole. Well, and of course you, I'm sure, break down jazz to various categories, if you will, somebody for vocals, somebody for piano, somebody for saxophone. There's at least one uh, maybe for each of those particular categories? Yes, absolutely. And in most cases, more than one. And, and I should also say the students can study with the classical faculty, and many of them do, particularly in brass, I find, bass, uh, the bass players often want to have some lessons with a classical teacher. So that's another great part of the conservatory is in addition to our incredible jazz faculty, they have the opportunity to study with members of the Boston Symphony, for instance. And then what about student enrollment? What are, what are your numbers there? Or is there a particular number where you say, you know, we have too many or we have too few? Yeah, it's been, I would say, fairly consistent for my tenure, which again is almost 20 years now. It's been about 100 students, and that's uh, in the jazz studies department. 
And it's about half and half undergrads and grads. We do have a doctoral program as well, but that's always very small, three or four students at the most. It may be a little smaller <laughs> this fall, by the way. I mean, I'm, I'm starting to hear from students who are deferring for a semester mm -hmm. for perhaps safety reasons. But uh, I, I would say in general, it's been pretty consistent, you know, 90s, maybe 110 or so. Uh, but I think it's a good number. No one's pushed me to grow, which I'm grateful for. Uh, the nice thing about that number, I feel like all the students get to know each other. They certainly get a lot of people on the same instrument. You know, we might have, say, 12 pianists at, the time, at a time. They get to hear their colleagues who might play a little differently than, than they do, have slightly different backgrounds than they do. It's a pretty supportive group for the most part. So anyway... That's that's a number I'm mm -hmm. I'm fairly happy with. Great. Go ahead and uh, engage then in a little bit of uh, name dropping. Throw okay. out some names of alumni of New England Conservatory okay. Jazz Studies for us. I always kind of hate this because I know I'm going to miss a lot of people. That's all but, right. Uh, we'll 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 say in advance apologies if we missed you, kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I mentioned some of the early people from the sort of pre-jazz studies department. But in the early days of the Jazz Studies Department, the drummer Harvey Mason, I often mention, he was actually part of the group that went around recruiting students to come to NEC. Fred Hirsch was a big part of the early, I'd say, 10 years or so. Marty Ehrlich, uh, Jerome Harris. Again, this is Anthony Coleman, who's now teaching at NEC. So uh, let's see, going forward, Don Byron, uh, he came a little bit later, the clarinetist, Dave Douglas, this is kind of the middle group, I guess, in terms of the history. So I guess when I was a student, like I said, John Medeski was a student at that time, there were so many great players, uh, uh, Regina Carter was from that period, the jazz violinist. Since I've been a student, I know there's a whole other group. Maybe they're not as famous, but many of them are making a name for themselves. By the way, many vocalists, I'm, I'm probably forgetting that. Luciana Souza, mm -hmm. uh, since I've been at NEC, uh, uh, Joe Lowry, who's an amazing jazz vocalist, and uh, Sarah Serpa. One sort of interesting story, there's a rock band, I call it, I don't know, a pop band called Lake Street Dive that's become very popular. And they were all jazz majors at NEC, but they're making this very creative, you know, music that's more like jazz mixed with pop and Motown. Uh, but their singer, uh, Rachel Price, is an amazing jazz vocalist. And uh, that comes through in her singing, no matter what she's singing. So when I'm thinking about vocalists, I often think about her. Uh, Dan Tepfer, I'm trying to think of people who are involved in the celebration, a wonderful young jazz pianist. And uh, Antonio Sanchez, the drummer, who was also part of the celebration of the 50th anniversary. We played some of his music. Sorry, I'm sure I'm doing a terrible job. I, I think, <laughs> actually, Ken, you're doing a great job. And, yeah. uh, you know, the point of the matter is you're producing an incredible quality of musicians and people for the world of jazz. And, mm -hmm. and I think it's truly a reflective of what you do there because a lot of people are attracted to New England Conservatory. And I'm even finding it uh, through my years and time in jazz that uh, New England Conservatory is coming up more and more than, let's say, 
Berkeley or other schools that have uh, had some credibility or renown. Uh, this particular uh, school is uh, one that's uh, starting to stand out, and it's getting my respect as well. That's good to hear. And uh, I mean, it's because of many people, by the way, the faculty that I mentioned earlier. I think for the school our size, sort of unsurpassed. We work very hard on it, but we're a small school. We have a small sort of marketing department. So it's it's sometimes frustrating knowing that a school like Berkeley, which has a much bigger budget, much more uh, of a large marketing team, I, it's hard to, to compete with that sometimes. So it's gratifying to know that we're getting the message out there. I would say uh, you're, you're doing the job because... Uh, uh, NEC is popping up a lot, uh, and I'm hearing it uh, with a lot of contemporary as well as established people of renown within uh, the jazz world. And if they're not from NEC, they certainly know the school, and, and, yeah. and that's a great thing. And I think, Ken, you and your staff are doing a wonderful job. Thanks, Alan. So let's, uh, I wish we could talk for quite some time, but I'd like to talk a little bit about you because you're not only this incredible educator, but you're also a fine musician and uh, your recordings have, have been wonderful. Uh, you've put out seven, eight recordings, I believe, uh, to your credit. Uh, one of which uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of, and that's the one, How to Say Goodbye, which came out in 2016. Uh, Sounds about right. Big yeah. band. And it's great. Uh, so do you miss being just the performer? Uh, or are you content with your role as it is? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, one big test for me was when I had my first sabbatical. When I was teaching in Wisconsin, I, I got a, a semester off. Or actually, there was a trimester, so 10 weeks off, to just compose. And I, I think I did a new recording during that time. And what I found is I actually missed teaching. I mean, it surprised me mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because I thought, oh, well, this will be great. I'll just practice, compose music. And it was, it was great. I was productive, more productive than I would have been otherwise. But I was also happy to go back and, 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 and return to my teaching. I'm happy at the moment. I'm, I'm doing a lot of writing right now. I tend to do more in the summertime. Uh, I would say I'm grateful for the the balance of the teaching and music making. I'm I'm grateful to have both. Any other aspirations right now to head back to the studio anytime soon? You know, I'd love to. And I have been thinking, uh, I have a few, I mean, I've got, I always have enough big band music for another record because record, I'm always writing. But one of the things I've been doing a lot over the years, I really haven't documented, is writing for singers, some original pieces, some arrangements. So one thought, this is just something I've been thinking about for a while, but this might be the time to do it, is to maybe do a recording. I mean, this is not ideal, but it could be one of these things where you overdub, have a singer sing you know, with the rhythm section, and then bring in the other sections to overdub over that. I think it's possible for this particular recording. You know, we'll see. So that's something I've been just uh, sort of gathering. Again, that's the first step. Okay, what would I record if I were to do this? Would that work? Because I think the, the days when we get a whole big band 
in a room together, maybe we're still not quite ready for that. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I think it will happen soon. But uh, if I'm going to do something in the next year or so, I, I'm, I'm a little nervous about planning on that. Obviously, I don't want to plan it and then have it fall through. So, But in the meantime, you can continue to uh, be the influencer that you are, the educator that you are. You obviously are doing it well because you've also had acclaimed college big bands as well as youth jazz orchestras to your credit. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think that speaks very well for what you and your staff are doing in uh, jazz studies at New England Conservatory. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much, Ken, for spending the time with us uh, and telling some of your story as well as that of New England Conservatory. It, it's a pleasure to have this time with you. Oh, it's a pleasure talking to you, Alan. Thanks. Well, all the best with this particular upcoming semester and the challenges that you face. Uh, I'm sure it'll all sort out uh, and then Hopefully soon uh, we can all be back to whatever the normal is that's going to be ahead of us, but I'm sure it'll be one that will uh, transcend and overcome. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to that day, and I'm also sure that it will happen. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz, featuring Ken Schaphorst, the chair of the New England Conservatory Jazz Studies Program. Our thanks to Ben Sidron for our theme song, Mr. P's Shuffle. Please join us for our next episode with multi-platinum selling music producer, songwriter, musician, and composer-arranger, Jason Spicy G. Goldman. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the app you used to listen to us. We have new podcasts every Wednesday. Please subscribe for free. We are now heard on all top platforms, as well as on Facebook and our website, allthatsjazz.net.